Variety Magazine tells us there's only one TV executive who's had the chance to work in one capacity or another with all six of the hosts of NBC's Tonight Show, from Steve Allen all the way up to Jimmy Fallon. The man we're referring to is a Miami University alum, and today you're going to hear his unique perspective on that 60-year history of the popular late-night network television show. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories, a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our discussion today is going to focus on the impact the ratings have on the longevity of television programs that many of you have come to enjoy. We ask Stats and Stories reporter Emily Potton to help us understand the importance of audience ratings in broadcasting. You may wonder, why did my favorite primetime comedy show just get canceled? Maybe your local favorite TV newscaster disappears without explanation, or your favorite rock and roll radio station switches to country. These situations happen because America's commercial radio and TV stations depend on advertisers to pay for programs and talent. Advertisers, in turn, decide where to spend their money based on a complex audience rating system. The Nielsen ratings are used to determine how many people are tuned in to a particular show on network, cable, or local TV programs. Miami University media and culture professor Bruce Druschel teaches a course in audience analysis. He says everyone is competing for advertising dollars aimed at the 18 to 49 age group. Most people don't realize the real customer in commercial uh, media is not the audience member, but it's the advertiser, and the, um, and the audience is simply the product that's being marketed. Joe London spent nearly 50 years in the radio TV industry. The former radio program director says advertisers look at two numbers to determine where to spend their money, and the first is potential audience. Let's say there's 100 people in your city, and 10% of those people are listening to the radio. That means you have a 10 rating. Bruce Druschel says the second key number is audience share, and that can make or break a program. If I have a 10 share, that means one in 10 of everybody who is watching television at that particular moment is, is watching me. Share gives us a, a relative idea of the competitive strength of a program. In other words, how it's doing against the other things that are available that people might be watching at that, at that time. Joe London understands the competition for the coveted top rating in a market and the advertising dollars that generates. The better the ratings, the more money you can make, and a, a successful station will pour some of that revenue back into the product. You know, it's always the chicken and the egg. It always has been. You got to have ratings to sell. Well, you got to have sell salespeople to, to make money so that you can afford to have programming people so that you can afford to have ratings. You, you got to have the ratings to sell the commercials to afford the talent, and it's one big circle. Professor Bruce Druschel says rating services face complex problems trying to analyze audiences. The size of a primetime network TV audience is much smaller today since people have a wider array of choices. Measuring audiences is more difficult since people record shows on their DVR or watch online. He says millions of dollars in ad revenue are at stake. The fractions make an even bigger difference than they, than they used to, and so we might have really big decisions having to do with the placement of a program, the viability of an actor, perceived audience appeal of a, of a particular actor or actress, whether they need to be different writers or, or a whole different approach to the show being made on, on just maybe a couple tenths of a rating point. Media companies often own both radio and TV stations. Druschel says a former general manager of Fox 19 in Cincinnati told him the station delayed launching its local news program. Druschel says the company's radio stations weren't generating enough money to make that possible. Even the audience performance of another medium that they were involved in 
made a big difference in their ability to do something as critical as news. And of course, the interesting thing about that is 19 now devotes a substantial part of their on-air day to news programming, and it's become a real profit center for them. They've done very well doing it. So the next time you turn on your TV or radio, remember your choices help determine which commercials you get to watch or hear. For Stats and Stories, I'm Emily Potton. Joining me on Stats and Stories are our regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. And our special guest today, NBC consultant Rick Ludwin, the former Senior Vice President for Late Night Programming and Specials. Now, Rick, before I ask you a question, I want to clarify one thing for the for, for people who are listening. I mentioned you've known all of the people from Steve Allen in the 50s all the way to today. I'm not saying that you worked at NBC when Steve Allen was uh, was there. How old are you? <laughs> 150. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but anyway, I know Steve Allen and Jack Parr preceded you when you got to NBC at 1980. But truthfully, you have had dealings with all of these hosts. Talk a little bit about how uh, you got to know both Steve Allen and Jack Parr. I worked with Steve Allen on a show in 1980 called the Steve Allen Comedy Hour on NBC. I had known him, I'd met him before in Chicago television and had worked with him and he knew me. So I respected him greatly and he certainly influenced my career in television, and he was a wonderful man. And I also worked with Jack Parr on two specials on NBC in the mid-'80s. One was called Jack Parr Comes Home, which was a retrospective of his years as the host of The Tonight Show and of a primetime talk show in the 60s. Uh, another special called Jack Parr is Alive and Well, which had in-person guests and even more clips from his years on The Tonight Show. And he was a character in every sense of the word, a wonderful man, very intelligent, very witty, and also very emotional. But I, of course, worked with Johnny Carson when he was the host of The Tonight Show and continued to stay in touch with him once he stepped down from The Tonight Show hosting job. And Jay Leno, of course, for all the years that Jay was the host of the show, Conan O'Brien, and uh, now Jimmy Fallon. So it's been a wonderful association to be, as far as I know, the only person who has ever worked with all of the hosts. Richard Campbell. Well, one of the things we're going to do today, since this is a show about uh, stats and stories, is talk about the story of TV ratings and audience demographics. And mostly what I'm interested in is talking to Rick about his his decision-making in terms of using numbers to make decisions about programming. But my first question, I think, is about how much you had to pay attention to ratings as an executive at NBC, and how did they inform your decision? How did you, well, we'll start with that, that, that part of the question. Well, the system of ratings is the only way there is to count the house in broadcasting or in television. And every day when you wake up in the morning, there is an email, it used to be a piece of paper that would land on your desk, that tells you how the network did the night before and how the other networks did the night before. And it's, I think in the the, the, um, most basic way, what a rating is, is simply how many people showed up. It's no more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. And you want as many people to show up as possible. So the higher the rating, the better it is. And of course, 
Conversely, if not enough people showed up, that show may or may not continue to be on the air. That's the, I guess, maybe the easiest way to explain what it's about. But it's no different than when a motion picture company opens a movie on a Friday and uh, on Saturday they get emails about how many people paid admissions to see that movie. And if a lot of people paid, they're a hit. And if not enough people paid, they're not a hit. And if a, uh, a car company introduces a new model, they know the sales for that particular model. And once again, that's how you judge uh, success or failure. And that's true in any business. John Baylor. Okay, it's a quick follow-up. So you're saying that on, on the next day, you would know what happened the night before. It seems like there's a lot of volatility in a measure like that, just because you're looking at what's happening immediately. I mean, how, how long do you want to uh, watch a, a program to think about, is it stabilized? Because I, I would imagine that there's a trajectory of interest that emerges, I mean, maybe or maybe there's a big splash, and then there's a, a downturn before recovery. I mean, so, so you get a sense of kind of how good the show was maybe with the, the current – the, the people that showed up on that show, the guests that night, but not necessarily about the, the, the legs that a program has long term. So how, how do, you, do you balance kind of the short term feedback with a longer term vision about the, the potential success of a program? Well, that is key. That's absolutely key to the sort of job that I had at NBC. You need to look at the hard numbers each day, but you can't go by that alone. You have to look at the product. And as you say, there are multiple episodes of a late night show or multiple episodes of a situation comedy. And you have to look at the scripts for next week's show and the show after that. And is the script that we're going to do next week as good or better than the one we did this past week? In the case of a nightly show like The Tonight Show, do you see, uh, as, as you had indicated, a growth curve? And are, are the sketches getting funnier? And is the cast working? And does the audience seem to like it? And are you hearing social buzz on Twitter and on Facebook? And do you hear from your relatives? And what is the press saying? You add all of those factors together. And sometimes you, that in, if you see positive um, results of, of all that other input, you might be willing to take a chance with a low Nielsen rating uh, in the hope that there's a core audience that really loves the show and can't get enough. And you see that from Twitter and from Facebook and from the press. And you're hoping that that will result in a higher Nielsen uh, rating as the weeks go by. That's the leap of faith you sometimes have to take if you believe in a show and believe that, okay, maybe we don't have the critical mass of viewers that we need, but we're going to get them because the product is good. Do you have an example of one where, you, where it had needed longer legs to, to, to see it, that you needed to monitor longer? That... I, I've got an example that you can talk about. So when, when, when Conan first replaced Leno, there was a, lot of, a little panic because the numbers fell, right? That's correct. So what, was you, what, what did you think about that? that you, we had this big shift, numbers fell, and the numbers seemed very important to some people at that point. The same thing had happened when Johnny Carson stepped down as host of The Tonight Show. When Jay Leno took over The Tonight Show in 1992, the numbers went down a little bit because I believe that loyal viewers who had watched Johnny Carson for many years drifted away and started sampling some other things. But what happened is that the numbers eventually went up with Jay. And Jay determined that he was going to win this race in the long run, and he almost willed it into being that each night they would do a better show than they had done the night before, and eventually 
the audience returned, and of course, Jay was the leader for, I don't know, 17 straight years. Um, another classic example certainly is Seinfeld, which uh, started off with very shaky Nielsen numbers, but we saw good scripts that were well-written, a cast that was really coming together, and uh, that there was buzz. This was before Twitter, of course, and before Facebook, but I certainly would hear from my relatives in Florida. Uh, I knew we were attracting uh, a broader and broader audience as the weeks went on. And so we stuck with it because there was just a belief that this product was really good. And of course, the thing that uh, put it over the top in terms of ratings was when uh, NBC moved the Seinfeld show to Thursday night behind Cheers, and Cheers was one of the big hits in television at that point. So Seinfeld benefited from the lead-in of Cheers, but Seinfeld was really good, and the audience discovered that. And when Cheers ended its run, Seinfeld simply moved from 9.30 p.m. behind Cheers to 9 p.m. in place of Cheers, and Seinfeld became the number one show for the rest of its run on NBC. So that is certainly a classic example of early Nielsen numbers for a show, Seinfeld, which perhaps in another time, in another place, maybe at another network would have been canceled, but we stuck with it and obviously it paid these huge dividends. What's the difference between uh, how much time you would give a show today versus back in the 90s and the example you're talking about with Seinfeld? Are networks much quicker to pull the trigger on a show if those ratings aren't good? Or does it depend on a number of factors? I think it depends on a number of factors that I was talking about just a minute ago. I think um, I don't know that it's any faster. Of course, the press press tends to accuse networks of pulling the plug too soon and too early. When that happens, I would bet it's because of not only the low rating, but a network looking at the product, as we were talking about a minute ago, and determining that this is not getting better. And the audience isn't showing up now, and they may not show up ever based on this material. And sometimes, in that case, you have to cut your losses and move on. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And today we're talking about the importance of audience ratings and the decisions that are made about television programming. I'm Bob Long. Our special guest today is NBC consultant Rick Ludwin, former senior vice president for late night programming and specials, along with our regular panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, media journalism and film chair Richard Campbell. Rick also, of course, is a Miami alum. Rick, I think the world, once cable came along, became so much more competitive, and it really took a bite out of uh, the traditional power of the networks in prime time. But I look back at a guy like Johnny Carson. You started your career with Carson. There was just something special about him. Nobody wanted to try to take him on. What was it about him that you think made him such a special uh, person for that time slot? I think... He will always be considered by hosts who have come into late night since. He'll always always be considered the gold standard. He was intelligent, was very funny, wonderful ad libber, uh, could perform sketches, was uh, uh, inquisitive, had many interests, and asked intelligent questions of guests, and always tried to set up a guest whether that guest was uh, an author or a movie star or a comedian, always tried to make the guests look good. And he was very good at setting up a guest, 
in a way that would make the guest shine and was never afraid of having the guest get bigger laughs or more applause. He was comfortable in uh, making sure that the guest felt comfortable and was interesting and was funny. And I think that, that uh, he, uh, he was... Uh, he was really uh, uh, he was a nice man. He was a complete professional. Uh, disliked people who were rude or who were unprofessional. He could get unpleasant very quickly around people who were unprofessional. But if you were uh, professional and you had manners, he was fine. He was a complete professional and uh, a wonderful man to work with. I, I, one of the real perks of having the job that I had for all those years was getting to know him and uh, being able, even after he left The Tonight Show, to uh, still have lunch with him once or twice a year. And I would always prepare for it as if I were a guest on The Tonight Show. We were only going to lunch, <laughs> but I would pre- prepare for it. Oh, I can tell him the story about buying the car. Yeah, I can tell him the story about taking the uh, uh, trip to Montana. That's a good story. I would, I, would, I would plan for it. And he was a wonderful audience. To make Johnny Carson laugh was about uh, as, a, a wonderful, as wonderful a feeling as you could get. It was just great to make him laugh. I just wanted to go back to another thing because you kind of touched on it. Um, the the ratings kind of dipped a little bit when Jay Leno succeeded. Was that something you kind of anticipated knowing that, okay, this guy's been on the air 30 years. Uh, things are, are, are going to change right now. Uh, yes, we did anticipate it. And uh, as a matter of fact, more recently, when Jimmy Fallon took over as the host of The Tonight Show, uh, I expected, along with a lot of other people, I expected sort of the same thing to happen, that viewers who had been loyal to Jay Leno for all those years might drift away, at least for a time, and maybe sample something else. What happened, however, when Jimmy Fallon took over The Tonight Show is that the numbers went up. The numbers went up not only in the demographic, the adults 18 to 49 number, but also in total viewers, meaning the whole audience from, uh, as they they call it, two plus, meaning age two to all the way up. Generally speaking, that reference uh, usually refers to the 50 plus audience. Generally, when you hear the expression total audience, what that means is the uh, 50 plus uh, age group. And the numbers for Jimmy Fallon uh, on The Tonight Show so far have indicated that both the demographic, the 18 to 49 adult demographic, which is what advertisers will pay a premium to reach, that number has gone up, and also the total audience number has gone up. So uh, you need to wait for a period of time, as you were saying, John, uh, to really see where the numbers have settled in, but certainly the early returns for Jimmy Fallon hosting The Tonight Show are very positive. You brought up the word demographics and uh, for our audience and uh, demographics is about the study of audiences, usually by different categories like age, gender, race, class, economic status. And the sort of gold standard in advertising has always been this 18 to 49. You you mentioned it. And, uh, And that's been true for as long as I've been teaching TV history. And I'm wondering with the population getting older. Is this a number that probably needs to be examined and looked at again? I mean, I can remember periods in TV history when I talk about it. For example, back in the early 70s, CBS had a number of shows like Hee Haw and The Red Skelton Show and Green Acres that had very high numbers. They had a big audience, but the networks considered 
it was the wrong audience because they were skewing older, older than 18 or 49, or very young. And they threw those shows off the air, uh, even though I think Red Skelton at the time was number seven uh, at, at one point. So, I mean, we have that sort of history, but you mentioned 18 to 49. Do you think that's got a, there needs to be a tweaking and an adjustment there? What my opinion is doesn't matter. What matters is what the advertisers want. And our, the, the primary customer of network television is advertisers. And what they have made crystal clear, uh, even recently, is what they will pay a premium to reach is adults 18 to 49. Mm -hmm. So if there were a representative from CBS in this room right now, CBS's position is that yes, they would like the uh, yardstick to be adults 25 to 54. Mm -hmm. Because CBS tends to have a somewhat older audience right. watching their programs and television in general, at least broadcast television, tends to be skewing a little bit older. So CBS's position is they want the advertisers to recognize adults 25 to 54 because uh, they want to fish where the fish are. The advertisers, at least so far, have said no. So that is what's driving the business, and we can debate whether I think or you think or anybody thinks it should change, but the fact is advertisers are not willing to change it, at least not so far. John Baylor. I'd like to follow up with, with sort of thinking about the, the technology changes and the impact on de this demo the demographic target. You know, so I'm thinking about all the streaming options that you have for, for viewing content and other ways. How does, this, how does this affect kind of what's happening with advertisers and their interactions with program planning? And, and I'm even wondering how do you even how do you evaluate the, the audience for some of these things that are being DVR'd or being, are being streamed or other, other technology? Well, that's a key question. There's no, there's no question about it. Nielsen is trying to come up with methodology that counts those sorts of viewing experiences, which we know uh, more people consume television by way of streaming or by way of uh, Hulu or Netflix or uh, through a smartphone or through a tablet. Nielsen has started to come up with ways to count that and to figure out whether, let's say that if someone is um, watching a show on their DVR after it's been originally broadcast, they record it on their DVR and watch it at a later time. Nielsen is, I, I hope accurately, uh, being able to figure out how many of those viewers watching that DVR playback watched the commercials themselves or uh, simply fast-forwarded through them. Because That's the question. The, the advertisers only want to pay for the viewers who actually watched the commercials. So when uh, an advertiser goes to a network to buy a spot in a network show, the advertiser doesn't want to pay for the rating for the show. The advertiser wants to pay for the rating of the people who actually watched the commercials, which is called C3, commercial, which, the, which a viewer watches either live or within three days. That's what advertisers have have indicated they will base their pricing on is C3. So that number usually is lower than the show rating, which of course it's the job of the ad agencies to try to get the price down as much as possible. Of course, it's the job of the network to try to get the <laughs> price up. So there's this, there's this dance that goes on between networks and advertisers as to what the rate is that they're going to pay. But 
once again, advertisers had made, have made it crystal clear, and there was a long negotiation that, that uh, settled on this C3 number. That's the number that adver advertisers will pay for. So people watching a DVR playback of a show who fast-forward through the commercial, the advertiser doesn't want to pay for them. Now, some networks want the number to be C7. In other words, the commercial rating plus seven days because that number, of course, is greater. And therefore, they can, a network can charge more for that. But the advertisers, at least so far, are saying no to that because, for instance, if you are a federated department stores and you have a sale going on over a weekend, you don't want day four through seven. You don't want to pay for those days because the sale may be over by then. Or if you have a movie that's opening on a Friday, you don't want seven days later. You want that weekend audience to go see the movie. So you don't want to pay for those extra days. So, so far, advertisers have said no to the idea of a C7 standard uh, that is commercial either live or seven days later. They want to stick with C3. You're listening to Stats and Stories. Again, we're focusing this time on the impact of TV ratings on network programming, also the issue of, of demographics for shows. I'm Bob Long. Our regular panelists are Miami University's Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell and Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. And our special guest this time, NBC consultant Rick Ludwin, former Senior Vice President for Late Night Programming and Specials. Richard Campbell, I'll go to you for the next question. Rick, I wanted to ask you, what do you think is going to happen uh in, with late-night programs. I mean, these are programs that in many ways the formats haven't changed very much in 50 or 60 years. And you have this, uh, this, uh, this younger audience out there, and I've heard you talk about this before, uh, they're, they're not watching TV the way my generation watched it, uh, the way even my 30-year-old children, I think, are... <laughs> are uh, using and accessing television in all kinds of ways. Uh, and I know even the recent change uh, at CBS with Stephen Colbert being picked to follow David Letterman has something to do with his, you know, on the Colbert Report, he has uh, a median age of 43, and I think Jimmy Fallon's is about 54, which is five or six years younger than what Letterman and maybe Leno had at the end of, of his time there. So with all of this change going on, how, how durable is this sort of late night format? And do you anticipate some things that are gonna shake it up in the next few years? Well, I would like to think, for obvious reasons, I would like to think that America's desire to end their day with a smile on their face and, and hearing the, a comedic take on the news of that particular day, I'm hoping that that is something the audience will continue to want to experience. As you know, most of the late night shows are uh, taped the same day they're broadcast. They're very timely. They're like a daily newspaper. You, you get to hear what is going on that day, and, and the host usually makes uh, comedy out of the day's events. I would like to think that as long as the product is good, the audience will still want that experience. Uh, now, are there ways that late night is changing even now? Yes. I mean, the, the, at least at the present time, the leader in terms of young adults watching television in the late night is the Cartoon Network and a show called Adult Swim. That's where a high concentration of adults 18 to 49 and 18 to 34 are watching television. But uh, uh, I don't think that necessarily has cannibalized the existing uh, uh, late-night 
comedy shows, I think it's added to the audience. I, I happen to believe that late night is a bit elastic in that a, a good show that comes on the air doesn't necessarily cannibalize what's already there. It, it adds to the audience. The pie gets bigger. So, but uh, the, the, the Cartoon Network Adult Swim show is a very um, formidable competitor in late night. There's a lot, as we talked about, so many young people no longer sit down and watch the TV set. They're watching on the internet. But I also know that Jimmy Fallon, I think, has exploited something here. He, a lot of his videos go viral, and, and students who haven't, for example, here in Miami, I hear them talking about how they watched something, but they didn't watch the show. They watched the viral videos. Is that a trend you also see happening that to help really promote what's going on? There's no question about that, and Jimmy Fallon in particular happens to be a tech geek. He loves Twitter. He loves all of that Instagram, and he, he – he, um, made a conscious decision, as did Lorne Michaels, the executive producer of The Jimmy Fallon Show, to have a presence on the Internet even before they went on the air at 1230 in the morning, that before they premiered at 1230 in 2009, uh, Jimmy and his producers and his writers were posting uh, videos on the Internet. And you would see Jimmy who would take you on a tour of the set that was then under construction. Or you would see Jimmy in his office at 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York uh, working with writers and coming up with segments for the show. This is before they went on the air, which, of course, all of this continued when they did go on the air. And as you say, they love it when they can post a two- or three-minute clip because that's what Internet users tend to really want is short clips that are funny with people they know and like. That's what Internet users want to see. And so Jimmy has definitely exploited uh, that method of reaching, uh, reaching potential viewers. I believe Jimmy is now up to about 10 million Twitter followers. And he often will tweet out a question. Uh, they do a weekly segment called hashtags. And Jimmy will send out to his 10 million Twitter followers and also talk about it on the air, a topic. For instance, uh, uh, strange things that happened when I went to summer camp. And he'll ask for Twitter followers to, to tweet in strange things that happened to them at summer camp. And then the writers select what they think are the funniest responses. And the next night, Jimmy will do that as a segment called hashtags. So he, he has nurtured and uh, uh, encouraged that two-way communication with the audience. You know, as, as you look at all the changes that are occurring, how, how have the use of ratings changed over time? Yes, I would say that the change that I've noticed uh, over the years is that, of course, the Nielsen uh, information has become more sophisticated and more plentiful. And sometimes I think people who have network programming jobs will look for any sort of slice of that Nielsen profile that encourages a network to stick with a show. For instance, sometimes there are shows that appear to be low rated if you look at the raw numbers alone, but they'll say, well, this show has a very, uh, the, the average income of the audience that watches this show is, is very high. And therefore, yes, it's a small audience, but it's, a, it's a, a, a premium audience because these are high income households and advertisers are willing to pay a premium for that. Cable networks tend to do that more than broadcast networks do. Cable networks will point out that uh, this audience, well, it's, it, yes, it might look small, but it's a premium audience for this reason or that reason. So you can, you can uh, as I guess with any statistic, you can slice it to, in a way that's advantageous to your position. 
Uh, I hope it, that's not true for any statistic. Uh, well, okay. <laughs> Many times. In, 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 malicious, in a malicious use sense, yes. <laughs> well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it malicious. I would just call it uh, uh, looking for any edge you can find. Uh, and so I think that's probably a little more true in, in, in cable um, situations than it is for a broadcast network. Running out of time, but uh, we'll go to Richard Campbell for another question. Uh, Rick, I'm going to ask you to, to – John doesn't like this so much – to spe- speculate a little bit here. Um, I don't you know, the, speculation. The, 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 business, uh, the business model of the newspaper industry, we've seen it collapse over the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the, the, uh, the future of broadcast television and if they are adapting better to the challenges of cable, which you mentioned, the internet, new technology, than the way young people consume TV. How do you think the the traditional networks that most of us here grew up with are going to fare, you know, going forward? That is a real challenge, and I think central to the planning, certainly at NBC, and I'm sure at the other networks is, as well, because there's a, a dilemma. It's, in a sense, a good dilemma, but there's a dilemma. There's this model that broadcast networks have had in place for 70-plus years, going all the way back to the radio days, where an NBC network or CBS or ABC sends out programs to 214 affiliated stations. Each of the networks has about 214 affiliated stations. Uh, Each market has a CBS affiliate, an NBC affiliate, an ABC affiliate. And... The network sends out these programs. The local stations put them on the air. The network sells advertising time in those programs. The local stations sell time in in the uh, programs. People make money. The networks still make money. And it's this this, uh, model that's been around, as I say, for 60 or 70 years, and it still works. But the future, whether in 10 or 15 years there will still be a need for those 214 affiliated stations with transmitters and whether the system will morph into uh, uh, all the Internet or other methods of delivery, uh, Hulu or, or Netflix, uh, uh, no one quite knows yet. And a lot of smart people and smart companies are betting a lot of money as to what the future is going to be. And maybe they're going to be right and maybe they're not going to be right. But certainly there's nothing written in the Constitution that says there has to be a CBS or NBC or ABC. And so it's up to those broadcast networks, those legacy uh, broadcast networks, to adapt to whatever the future brings. Because none of them wants to wind up in the dustbin of forgotten companies. But that's what happened to record stores. And that's what happened to uh, – has happened in retailing. And so – you cannot stand still if you're one of the broadcast networks. You have to adapt to the future. But you've got this lucrative model. The car is moving. You're asking the networks to change the tires while the car is still moving. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're asking them to sell the car and buy a bicycle instead. I mean, How do you do that when you still have this, this legacy model, business model, that still works to a great extent? That's the challenge that all of the broadcast networks have. I happen to feel, I've always felt, that uh, the software side of the business is more important. By, and I don't mean computer software. I mean, by software, I mean programming. Mm-hmm. That good programming 
is something that the audience will figure out how to get. They'll, if they want to see House of Cards, they'll subscribe to Netflix and they'll figure out how that works and how it streams. Or if they want to see Mad Men because they've heard it's a good show, they'll find out where AMC is on their, uh, on their uh, menu of options in their home and they'll watch AMC. They may not, not even know what AMC stands for. They may not watch anything else on AMC, but they want to see Mad Men. So the audience has told us time and again that they will turn over rocks to find good programming. The hardware side of things, by that I mean the method by which the program gets to consumers, at least to me, is of less interest. Somebody else will figure that out. And it's always going to be changing. So that's a, a, a more difficult business to manage because uh, we know that you know, the television sets change. No longer are there standard def televisions. Now it's all high def. And uh, the, the methodology that the signal gets to the user is of less interest, at least to me. Strong programming will always rule, and that's what viewers will turn over rocks to find. Thank you. Rick Ludwin, thank you very much for sharing all of your expertise on network programming from your 30-plus years at NBC. We really appreciate you being on Stats and Stories. This was great. It was fun to be here. Thanks, Rick. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us on our program, you can send us an email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Uh, be sure to join us for our next edition of Stats and Stories. It's a show where you'll always hear us talking about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. We'll